Hey, my name is Jason. I'm the producer of It Starts With Attraction. I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new website solely dedicated to working on your pies. Introducing ItStartsWithAttraction.com. You can listen to every episode, learn about the pies, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to ItStartsWithAttraction.com. It starts with attraction, one word. It starts with attraction.com to get signed up today. Stress isn't just a feeling you feel, like you might feel sad or happy. Stress is actually the result of a hormonal change that occurs in your body, especially from cortisol, but there's a ton of other things that go into it. In today's episode, I am speaking with Krista Bigler. She's an award-winning dietitian nutritionist, an online educator, and the host of the Less Stressed Life podcast, which, by the way, I absolutely love her podcast. She specializes in helping health-conscious, high-performance people overcome bloating, fatigue, food reactions, but she's also doing work with eczema. So if that's something you're struggling with, then you can check out her website at eczemanutritionist.com, and she has a cookbook that surrounds that as well. She helps listeners and clients with unique ways to improve the inflammation-causing stressors we inevitably have in life by sharing science that enlightens and inspires. And I can totally attest to that because in the conversation that you're about to hear between the two of us, I had so many aha moments. She is very wise in knowing how different inflammatory responses and stressors that are in our environment can affect us personally. And I believe you're going to have so much insight from this episode into things that you need to start changing immediately in order to decrease your stress, decrease the cortisol in your body, and to decrease your inflammation because it has a huge impact on your health. Let's dive in to today's episode. Hey, my name is Kimberly Beam Holmes, and this is It Starts With Attraction, where we discuss how to become the most attractive that you can be physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, or as us insiders call it, the pies. You can become more attractive to others and most importantly, to yourself. We will teach you how. Let's dive in. If you've ever wanted to know what your attractiveness score is, then I have a free guide that you're going to want to go and download. Now, I'm going to tell you that this isn't going to be like those quizzes or surveys or tests that you see online that are like, how hot are you or how sexy are you? Because I think those end up making people feel worse about themselves at the end than ever before. This free attraction assessment guide that I have created is a no gimmicks, truthful and honest representation of how you can assess yourself and see the areas of attraction that you feel most confident in and the areas of attraction where you need opportunity for growth. It's not going to be done in a way that makes you feel worse about yourself, but is going to give you real tools and tactics that you can begin to implement after you know which areas you should focus a little more on and which ones you're already slaying. You can go and get your free guide at itstartswithattraction.com. You'll see the opt-in form in the lower right-hand corner, and it'll be emailed to you immediately. I can't wait to hear about your results and your scores and the way that you decide to make some changes in your life so that you can be the most attractive that you can be. Go and get your free guide at itstartswithattraction.com. Also a reminder, just so you know, that the content in this podcast is not intended to constitute or be a substitute 
for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. And I always recommend that you seek the advice of your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions that you may have in regards to any medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking help or medical help because of something you have heard in this podcast. This is simply a tool to provide you information so that you can go and get the results and the help that you need. I'm here with Krista Bigler, and I cannot wait to have this discussion because it is all about stress. But I have to start. So the first question I have to ask you, Krista, is how did you get into deciding I'm going to study the topic of stress and how it affects our health and our life? I feel like there's a backstory there. Yeah, it was very much accidental. Uh, when it was 2017, 2016, and at that time, Facebook Live had really come out, and I was doing Facebook Lives, and I do cooking things and whatnot, and then I wanted to talk about inflammation, right? Because we know inflammation, which is sort of that itis, right? It's that it's that often short-term thing our body is trying to use to protect ourselves, but long-term, it becomes a very low-grade, annoying, nagging symptoms. And we kind of attribute a ton of annoying things to inflammation. So I started to talk about inflammation. And I noticed that the people that were showing up to listen to that were just the people that kind of already knew what that was. They were already educated about it. So I thought, there's got to be another synonym that will help people understand, like a broader one that will help people understand. And so when I was trying to come up with the name of the podcast in 2017, uh, I landed on Less Stress Life. Now, I mean, I've had lots of times after that where I thought, was that a good idea or not? But it's actually been a beautiful thing because it it wasn't that I had started as such. I was really doing a lot of things in practice around inflammation reduction. And so uh, it's basically given me a wide umbrella on which to talk about things. Um, and I've in, and so frequently, it's funny how it like things just work out, right? It's like karma, right? Because the more you learn about things, the more every stress is integrated into it. And often... And I know a lot of times when I'm talking to podcasters, high performance people, we don't identify as stressed, right? But things like excitement can be viewed uh, by our body as stress. And so kind of getting into that, sometimes it's like a good thing and sometimes it's a bad thing because stress is not really, it's not a badge of honor. And a lot of times um, an accomplished person wants to avoid, like we might realize, hey, it's a stressful year, whatever, but we're just going to go ahead and we're going to like tuck that under the carpet type thing. And so we don't really want to, sometimes it's not always an attractive word, right? But it gives us a big umbrella in which to talk about so many things because I will often talk about in business as well, um, that it's not just stress. I'll often tell people there's four things that are preventing success. It's usually like regular stress, because if you have regular stress, we can talk about all those things, environmental stress, um, GI stress, and sometimes food stress. So anyway, we can, we can talk about it in many contexts. You can tags, you can put stress on the back of any word and kind of make it, make it work to your advantage. Because <laughs> <laughs> everything can be stressful in some way. So if you, okay, so let's start by how would you define stress? That's a great question because again, this goes back to it, it depends, but let's talk about what it actually feels like. Now, if I can, let me start with a story because I'm talking about stress all the time with clients. I'm talking about reduction, stress reduction strategies, and there's a lot of different things. And again, I'm spending more of my time looking at like GI stress, et cetera, because that's going to create an insult to other organs. So maybe you've heard of, if you're a, if you're health savvy at all, you may have heard of adrenal stresses, right? Or HPA axis dysfunction, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal dysfunction. Well, what happens actually? is when stress comes in, whether it's real stress, physical stress, let's say like exercising, that is 
real stress. Um, how about emotional stress, right? Like someone flipped you off in the freeway. And so I, I, you know, that might be a stressor for someone or perceived stress, things that haven't happened yet. 2020 is a good, you know, example of that. It's like a lot of perceived stress, right? Like we're, we're taking in this thing that hasn't maybe even happened to us yet, maybe. So it's many different angles of stress. And so when I'm working with people, I'm, I'm often talking about that, that adrenal piece, of course. But so anyway, stress comes in, it triggers signals in your brain, just trigger, trigger more signals to your drain, brain, which triggers signals to your adrenal glands. And when you have your adrenal glands secrete two main hormones, and one of them is cortisol. And cortisol is often, we think about this, right? This is our darling stress hormone. And then the other one is DHEA. DHEA helps control our blood sugar. Anyway, so cortisol is that fight or flight response. So if we think about our nervous system, it is fight or flight or rest and digest. We learned that in sixth grade, right? So cortisol is meant to be protective. If you stub your toe, it's meant to go there, help bring uh, resources to that part of the body, and then help it calm down. But if we continue to let cortisol be elevated, that's the issue. So cortisol is actually supposed to rise and stay up for 90 minutes. This means if you're driving home from work and you get a flat tire, you should be able to go to bed that night right? Because if you had high cortisol for a long time, you'd be in fight or flight, pretty hard to rest, right? Rest and digest. So the problem that starts to happen is we have chronic stressors. We don't have very good stress resilience or we're not very, like we cannot recognize those little signs and symptoms. And so when we allow this to go on for much greater than that 90 minute threshold and it stays chronic and chronic and chronic, instead of our cortisol, our cortisol can do a few things. It can, it can um, kind of stay medium and then just spike when it needs to. It can stay spiked kind of perpetually, which is kind of chronic stress. And if it's been s- spiked for so long, let's think, night shift work, um, being in really rough relationships, things like that, um, military, like maybe being active military, right? Because that's kind of like you're on high alert all the time or something where you're like always active. Um, or just things that we sometimes create. Maybe you went through grad school. This is a more common situation. You went through grad school. It was very stressful. You were up late. You didn't sleep well. I have a client right now who she would work through the night often. So those are like pretty substantial examples of what it looks like to stay high stress for so long to where your body's like, oh, I'm going to burn out a little bit. There is one other uh, thing, though, that's a little bit hidden. And I'm kind of going off on tangents, but I hope it's making a little bit of sense. Brain communicates to adrenals, creates stress hormone release. I'm talking about the actual physical manifestations of stress, not the fluffy versions, because that's kind of how I work. Um, But Let's say someone is on, and I think this is a really common thing. People, has anyone ever taken Flonase by the nose or used topical steroid cream or even been on prednisone for an autoimmune flare? That is read by the body as cortisone, which is the deactivated version of cortisol. And so we're just talking about cortisol being the darling stress hormone. And so if we're constantly putting on, we absorb everything we put on our skin. Uh, we, I've had people react to steroid drops in their eyes and their nose. When we have used steroids chronically or long-term because they're meant to be short-term. It's like taking the batteries out of the alarm clock, sort of. Usually we have this, when cortisol spiking, it's like, hey, I need help right here, right? So our body's trying to protect us. It's a protective mechanism. But when we add cortisone, it's like telling the brain to stop producing that alarm signal. And it takes the batteries out of the alarm. So that way it shuts down the production. So if you use it for an excessive amount of time, you'll also get that flat line. And that is not, well, like people don't necessarily know that. So I just wanted to share that these are some mechanisms. This is literally what it looks like in your body. All right, now it's a story time. Uh, So the thing that is really useful is being able to recognize little signs of stress before they become really obnoxious. Because once you have stress come in, it only takes 
24 to 36 hours to change what your gut microbiome is doing, which is kind of the centerpiece of your body. A lot of things. So for example, I have to learn this lesson a lot. (laughs) Sometimes I'll be, I'll be working away and my eyelid will start twitching. And I will think to myself, why in the world is my eyelid my eyelid twitching, which I know is a sign of magnesium deficiency, which I know is a stress response because when cortisol goes up, it dumps some nutrients. We can talk about the things that it does, but it dumps some nutrients, including magnesium. So let me tie this together. So stress goes up, magnesium gets dumped. Magnesium is essential for over 200 different biochemical reactions in the body, including making stomach acid. And if you don't have great stomach acid, you're not going to digest protein as well. Your microbiota is going to suffer. It's like opening up a gate to allow more crap in, which is going to look like maybe bloating gas, et cetera, later on. So anyway, but back to magnesium. Some common symptoms are eyelid twitching or restless legs. Okay. And a twitch It's very common because it's like a, it's an electrolyte as well. And so it's, um, it's, it's useful in like nerve conductivity, et cetera. Okay. So, um, and how that fires. So when my, when my eyelids twitch, I think this is so aggravating to me. I'm sitting here talking to people about stress and I'm having symptoms of stress. What in the world is going on? So uh, long story short, there are things that, well, let me, let me back up. You can have stress from being excited, which I tend to an excited person when I'm going over things like this, or from going to appointment to appointment to appointment. Those are not things we always see as stress, but can be read as stress, right? Because if we're not kind of like going through that with a pretty calm, chill, you know, personality around it, or let's say we're um, burying that stress inside. Like I've got an, uh, a, a colitis guy right now, and he seems super chill and flat, but he is dealing like he takes it on on the inside, which starts to affect motility. Okay. So the whole eyelid thing. So it was not just regular stress. It wasn't just excitement. It wasn't just going from appointment to appointment. It was caffeine consumption. Well, because a lot of people drinking a lot of caffeine will, um, it depends on the person. I'm actually wearing a, a glucose monitor right now um, for fun as an experiment, uh, as, a, as a side thing from another podcast. I was I um, I, I interviewed someone who is a uh, having a glucose monitor. We usually think about blood sugar in terms of diabetes, but they have a lot of potential value in the everyday person to see if stress increases your blood sugar, to see how caffeine increases it, just to see like. Example, I went hiking last weekend and I had eaten so much and my blood sugar was so low because I had done so much hiking. The next day I like flew home and it was so high (laughs) because I had done no activity. So anyway, caffeine. So caffeine can increase cortisol. And so if you're increasing cortisol with caffeine, it's so obnoxious. I've had people tell me that their anxiety is completely abolished by um, just taking an intentional hiatus from caffeine. And so I don't want to hear that. Yeah. (laughs) Talk about what it means if you can't wake up in the morning without a cup of coffee, because I think this is relevant. I want people to know what are these, like, what does this actually mean on the inside? Cause it doesn't, what happens is people will say, I don't really feel quite right. So I'm going to go have some lab work done. And then their lab work comes back as totally normal. And people say, I don't feel great, but like they told me, it must be good enough. Right. And so you kind of will let it rest or another, you know, I can think of something another mom said to me recently. She's like, well, yeah, I'm really exhausted, but I just figured this is how it is when you have a few kids and, you know, I can handle this and it's fine. Right. Um, Especially if you get checked and you don't have 
markers that maybe are that black and white out of range or maybe not the right markers or whatnot. Right. So anyway, um, but yeah, coffee is a funny, is a funny creature. It's like, it's a great experiment. This is where everyone turns off the recording. It's a great experiment to try to go without it for a few days and just see how you feel around it. Because, um, you know, it's kind of a drug, right? And so it'll, we can have can have caffeine headaches. And I don't suggest if you're starting with a pot of coffee to, to just go cold turkey by any means. Um, you'll have a heck of a headache for like a month. Um, but you could titrate down. But you just want to see how things are affecting you. And quality of coffee will make a big difference as well. So I can have certain certain coffee will not... Af- like certain high quality coffee will not affect me as much as like crappy coffee, so to speak. So right, fun stories. I hope that was fun to talk about. We can talk more about... So, can't wait. So I love everything you said, I feel like you and I could be best friends because we are doing some of the same things. First of all, I just listened to a podcast about blood or the continuous blood glucose glucose monitors the other day. I was like, I want one of those, but apparently they're only available through prescription. Right. So there's company, there's a few companies. I'm not familiar with all the companies, but the, I had interviewed a CAEO and they're very much in beta. And I would say they're, it is very much in beta yet. Um, but basically through a questionnaire process, they have a doctor licensed in your state that just prescribes it. So they send me out a couple boxes, strap it. I just like, it's like the size of two quarters thick. Um, and like a sticker. And so I wish I could show you right now, but anyway, and so they have a couple different apps again, beta. So they have a couple different apps. And so the one, the Freestyle Libre, which is a continuous glucose monitor. So it stays on my arm for 14 days through showers, et cetera. And as long as I put my, and it doesn't have Bluetooth in it, but it has like a near, if you get your phone near it, it'll, it, with the right thing up, it'll scan it and tell me my blood sugar. So this is compared to doing this finger stick all the time, which is also something you can just buy over the counter and get. And so our thought process in the next several months, they think that continuous glucose, more of them will come to the market. Price will go down and hopefully the prescription may come off because it is kind of a useful tool or there's programs where they've kind of partnered with doctors to get them to you, you know, for reasons of interest. <laughs> you know, I just want to experiment. I want to see how it is. And I think for some people, the accountability piece is huge because I wouldn't have, you know, you kind of know this, but when you see it on paper, like, oh, my blood sugar is not good on this day that I am just sitting uh, in the plane. And like, it was amazing when I ate like so much and was hiking. It's kind of fascinating. And I was with, when the weekend where I was hiking, I was with a girl whose husband is type one diabetic. And she said, yeah, he doesn't even need insulin if, if we're walking a lot. So anyway, it's kind of cool. Well, and it's, it's part of, so blood sugar was something I didn't even really start studying until earlier this year, because you think that's only for people who are diabetic. It only matters when you're diabetic, but it really is amazing how much blood sugar can tell you about your body and the way it's responding. And it's, I think it's a shame that more people, so I have been sticking myself for the past like several months now, just every so often looking, seeing what's up. Um, and I remember one morning I didn't sleep well. I, my anxiety was so high that morning. I took my blood sugar and it was 130 and I hadn't eaten anything. And I was like, Not this cool. isn't good. Mm-hmm. Then the next morning it was like, I had slept well, I was doing some meditation before taking it. And it was, you know, 85 or whatever, and I hadn't eaten. So it's like, it's an indicator of what's going on in your body. 
Totally. And we would think that your blood pressure would do that, right? Just the way you described it. We would think with anxiety, you know, with being anxious, not sleeping well, we think your blood pressure would go up, but your blood sugar is incredible. And it's one of the most widely recognized metabolic tools to look at so many different things. So if someone doesn't think this applies to them, have you ever been hangry? Do you have to pack snacks in your bag when you go somewhere? If you do, you need to pay attention because you're, um, you're not very metabolically flexible. So there's a few ways to talk about this and I'm not saying it's like, but if I go back to adrenal stuff and I talk about like someone with chronic stress, if you are in like the bottom of the barrel there, those people really struggle to control their blood sugar. Cause remember DHEA comes out of the adrenals as well. So if the adrenals are under func, if they cannot function properly, cause we've literally damaged them and we can do some things to regenerate, but if we've literally damaged them. They cannot produce the, the hormones like they would like. And so you'll be very like shaky if you don't eat more regularly when that is really low. Okay. But in general, a lot of people can be affected that by that as well. It doesn't have to be like your adrenals are really damaged, but just to back up, if we talk about hormones, hot topic, right? Hot, hot word. But what does that mean? It's like, it's really like if there's a hormone issue, that's not the root cause. The root cause of hormone issues is what you're looking at. So hormone issues are, or hormone imbalances are triggered by blood sugar issue or like the root causes of them are blood sugar micronutrient deficiencies, gut imbalances, and stress are the big ones. There's a little bit of liver dysfunction too, depending on, but like at least those four, blood sugar, stress, micronutrients, and gut imbalances. And so when you have all those things going on, I will tend to just work on those and it influences hormones, including cortisol, including estrogen, including testosterone, including progesterone, et cetera. So this is interesting. Last year in February, my doctor, no, this year, this the year has dragged on. This year in February, my doctor did what you probably know, the Dutch test, the hormone. Yeah, I literally hormone. just did an episode about that this week. Oh, well, people should go, especially women, although it can be done for men. Oh, yeah, it can be so, done for men. Yep. And um, so. I, I called it, should you test your hormones? Because this is like a thing people want done, but don't necessarily get it. And so there's a difference between what you can do serum at your doctor. They will tend to test like E1 through, so certain types of estrogen, but it doesn't look at the metabolism of what the estrogen is doing. And Dutch test looks at the metabolism. I apologize for interrupting you. It looks at the metabolism. And so therefore you can like make certain interventions depending on where it's getting stuck in the process because everything our body is doing is a process. And like where is it getting stuck in the chain? If you just do the thing at the top, like that's not going to work long-term. You want to know where it's stuck. And if you have a uh, family history of breast and cervical cancer, oh my gosh, you can just move the estrogen out of that cancerous pathway to the good one if you knew that this was an issue. I think that's like what I want to shout from the rooftops is that because the because birth control is associated with reducing the risk for breast and cervical cancer, it's because it's shutting off estrogen in general, right? That's not like, it's like, well, this is an easy, like whatever, but it increases risk of other cancers. So if we understand why that is, it's because it's shutting it off in general. But regardless, even if it's suppressed, you can still have too much going down that cancerous pathway. And I just want to say like, there's so much you can do about that. So I want people to know like, you're not stuck there. Just move, let's just move the estrogen out of the bad pathway into the good pathway. Anyway, rant over. Well, it, so everyone needs to listen to that podcast, male or female, that you did about should you test your home hormones? Because for me, it was so eye-opening. So he, when he read me the results, first of all, as he after he finished telling me what mine said, I said, how is it that you know more about female health than I do? And I'm a female. Um, well, because he's an amazing doctor and he also has eight children. So I think he knows a little bit something about hormones. But he... Um, 
he, so what mine ended up saying, cause I felt crazy for the past five years before that my stress was through the roof. I had that adrenal fatigue back in 2015, where literally one morning I was in the middle of my workout and it felt like I had eaten a bottle of Benadryl and it stayed that way for months. And I went to doctors at, at that point. I didn't have this doctor. My husband was in the military. So I went to military doctors. They, and they were like, we can't see anything wrong. You're fine. So I kept working out. I kept pushing myself and it took a year for me to recover. So that happened for a month in 2017. My eyelid twitched a month straight, a month straight. So anyway, finally, my doctor goes, I've been talking right to you. Sorry. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So he did this Dutch test. And what he found was, first of all, my DHEA was low. That was one thing he found. The second thing he found was my cortisol was normal, but my metabolized cortisone was through the roof. So the way he described it to me was, it's like your body is taking out the trash and then no trash man is coming to pick it up. So you just have like this increase of cortisone in your body that you have to get rid of. And I said, okay, what pill do I take? And he said, no, you have to do this through stress reduction, changing your lifestyle, go to the beach, like do something to change your life. And I was like, well, that's not what I wanted to hear, but okay. (laughs) But it gave me this picture of, I'm not crazy. I'm like, there's actually something in my body that is reflecting the way that I'm feeling. Absolutely. I love, I love hearing it. And I want to, I want to tag on for everyone that metabolized cortisol is cortisol. This is 97%. This is the long-term, like what's it doing long-term picture? Is it, is it high? Is it just right? Is it Goldilocks? You know, is it like just right too high or is it totally burned out? And then the free cortisol is what we produce right at this moment. So it's worth 3% of it. But what you're describing is it gets deactivated to cortisone, kind of like we were talking about earlier when people put topical cortisone on. It's a deactivated version in this for storage because our body would be like, oh, hey, I might need some of this later. Then it deactivates a whole bunch trying to protect our, I think it's protecting our kidneys actually. Um, And so essentially it's exhausting to be deactivating all this stuff. So you, you were creating a lot of stress hormone right now, cortisol, your body was like madly trying to like get rid of it or like take it again, take it out. And then it couldn't get all the way out. Right. So lots of things like definitely nourishment, but you can't, and this is the thing you can't out supplement that. Cause it's a lifestyle thing. And you literally hear toxic things. People say, I've got someone like this right now. And she like, it's, it's part self-realization. It's like, Oh yeah, I want to do, I want to get here so I can like hurry up and things I've never said, I want to do this so I can hurry up and have a go like do a bodybuilding competition. And I'm like, (laughs) you literally like your, your adrenals are like flat because of topical steroid use. Like this is not, (laughs) it's a good vision, but not for right now. I hope it's like in two years at least or something. So anyway, yeah, I didn't, I was talking directly to all of your symptoms, but this is the thing. It's like, it's, it's literally, it's, it's so, it's so much more prevalent and we need to make it, we need to make people aware of it, right? Because if you're aware, you can actually do something. Otherwise you're just going to go and get labs drawn that don't really, you know, that don't mean anything to you. Right. Right. Exactly. And they're like, or they look normal. I apologize. They look normal and they're not. <laughs> right. Right. Cause it's just looking at things in that. Yes. So here's a question. How does someone's diet. And I'm not just talking about the food they eat, but I'm talking about, although I know that matters, but I'm also talking about that diet mentality. So how does that affect 
our hormones, our cortisol, our blood, our, our stress, the stress that our body experiences. Um, because one of the things I, I know I've heard a lot of people talk about is it's difficult to, your body wants to hold on to weight if you're stressed. And so even just, they say, I have not experienced this, even just working on your stress, your body could start to shed unneeded pounds that you have. Um, And I feel like that's frustrating because for me, and I know for many of my listeners, they're probably thinking, but I'm trying, like I'm working out, I'm eating right. And I still can't just get to a place where I feel good about my body. So what would you say about all of that? Oh, that is a tough one. I, I'm going to answer something really direct really quick and then get into that other piece because it's not like a short answer what you just asked. I thought you were going to ask me, what is it appropriate nutritionally if someone has adrenal stuff going on? And I do want to like just give that a little bit of lip service because it's maybe not what you think as well. Um, it's really about balancing. It's really about blood sugar balance. And so not what here's what doesn't work. You cannot be intermittent fasting majorly when you have like when your adrenals. So you said something really important. You said you were working out and then it felt like you took a Benadryl and that's a red flag. If you are exercising and it's hard and you feel worse afterwards, this is your sign. Okay. This is your sign. If you are not eating enough food, this is actually a huge trigger to adrenal stuff as well. Not getting like under eating and over exercising just in general. So if you're not getting enough nutrition or energy, so to speak, you can also feel like crap, right? So that's going to be a big thing is regular meal intervals to try to help your blood sugar because your blood, your body's hormones that help manage that blood sugar are not going to be able to do what they needed to do. So you need to accept that's the first step of anything, right? Like you must now accept that you need to be able to eat at regular intervals. And there are plenty of like right now, intermittent fasting is really popular. And that may, that's you, that may absolutely make you feel worse. So it's hit workouts and intermittent fasting that are really contraindicated for this. Okay. So if we back up and think about how this is like kind of diet culture-ish, and if we think about when HIT or high-intensity interval training was really popular, gosh, I'd say 15, 15 to 20 years ago, it was like super at its heyday, really. And so I can almost like say by the decade that you live in, like the, of the age that you are, if that was like a thing, like because people would do so much high-intensity exercise so much per week instead of varying things, and it was very difficult. It was very hard on their adrenals. Then we look at, let's just say women, and I mean men as well, like everyone, right? There's a ton of pressure in our current lives. And so it's how we are managing that. We're not going to change. I mean, we can, sorry, we can change the world, but we are not going to change the world as it relates to our stress. So we have to change what's going on on the inside for us. Okay. Um, And that may look like therapy and counseling to accept your body. This may look like um, leaning into something. I have some books on my shelf because I will talk to someone and say, you do not have a, like, you can really clearly tell someone maybe doesn't have a very good relationship with their body or food relationship. There's a good book by Louise Hay called Mirror Work. And I like it because it's 21 days. It's like a couple paragraphs a day. And it's literally like body love and self-affirmations. And when you hate yourself and you hate your body, it's pretty hard. Like loving yourself is how you move forward and how you're happy in life, right? If you don't like yourself and you don't like your body, and I actually have a podcast called, Can You Still Love Your Body and Want to Change It? 
Yes, you can. But it kind of, it depends on where you're at right now. You need to acknowledge where you're at right now at this moment. I know that the world is stressful. I know that people rely on you. I know that you have kids. But what we can do is improve our internal stress resilience. We can talk about what that looks like and some really cool things. And because it's not, it's actually like... It's hard, but easier than it than you would think, um, actually. So we want to improve our stress resilience, which b- basically means if someone flips you off in the freeway, no big thing. Not going to internalize that. Don't freaking care. Whatever. Like, just not a problem, right? Or when someone's like dropping their stuff on your desk, people pleasers. Someone's dropping their stuff on your desk and you're like, oh my gosh, I got to get that done. It's like, nope whatever, you know? So like that is somewhat, that's kind of how it feels, I guess, at least for me, like it's a much more Zen feeling like, Oh, not like, Oh, I'm really like uptight because I have to, I'm like, Oh, I'm late for this or I'm late for that. Or I got to get to this or whatever. Right. Um, it doesn't matter if you're late or early or whatever, right. Ang- anxious stress. It's, it's different, but there are similar mechanisms happening inside the body. So I don't know if that answered your question, um, fully, but we can talk about what it looks like to improve stress resilience on the inside things that you can do today if you want. Yes. Let's talk about that first. And then I have more questions. All right, cool. Um, so, so stress resilience should always be a thing that we're working on. And I also had a recent interview, um, where we talked about nature for stress resilience. So just 15 minutes. So going outside on your lunch break, just 15 minutes could create like hours of stress resilience in your day. It's freaking cool, huh? Um, actually getting out into nature and being getting unplugged, it takes a while. Like the first stage of that is resistance. (laughs) I don't even want to be here sometimes, right? Before you go, but if you can get out and get totally unplugged for a few days, you can enjoy maybe a full week or two weeks of stress resilience after that. So that's pretty freaking cool. But I know that doesn't always happen. But uh, like if you go, actually, let's let me finish the lunch break idea. Because when you go outside, you need to not hear the cars. You need to hear the birds. Like so you drown out the cars to hear the birds. You want to like use your senses to engage with nature a little bit. And literally the aerosols of the trees improve TH2, which is like generally good immune markers. And so it upregulates like your immune system is essentially, right? And also our microbiota or our, there's different things going on in our immune system. Like my favorite, one of my favorite markers is secretory IgA, which is immune system cells in your um, intestinal lining. And they have a really short memory. So they need stimulation. And so like travel and seeing other people, et cetera, like diversifying your environment allows your body to like sample and like pick up and like and frame new microbiota essentially. So like nature is huge. And then the other major one that's under underutilized and no one wants to hear it is working on breath work. And I cannot tell you of a th- something that is any greater for stress resilience, it feels like, than breath work and like consistently doing it every day. You might have to trick yourself into doing it, like participate in a YouTube yoga class that you like that makes you breathe in a certain way or like watch one that kind of goes through breath work. And I know sometimes you're going to be turned off by, by certain ones that you watch. Um, but like, just keep pushing through it because like, it's very simple. Here's the simple one. You can, the simple premise of breath work is that you need to exhale equal to or greater than you inhale. So if you inhale three, exhale three, if you inhale three, exhale six. So you can inhale. I am at peace, but you want to Inhale through the mouth, inhale through the nose, exhale through the mouth or exhale through the nose. But if you exhale through the, through the mouth, you can um, like flatten your belly. So anyway, I dare you to inhale three right now and exhale fully and do that three times. And I just like, if you don't feel better, 
come tell me. And I like, I just doubt it. That's not going to happen. Like no one after that. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Bet. I bet a lot on it. Is there a certain amount of time that people need to spend? Um, so I'm going to ask the question, but I, I kind of know the answer. And then I have a follow-up question. So is there a certain amount of time that people need to spend working on breath work each day? What I suggest first is to not make it an extra activity that you have to do. Cause you know what, you're probably already overloaded. And so if you're going to wash dishes, your hands are at a good spot for that. So if you're washing dishes or if you're driving somewhere and your hands are on the lower part of the steering wheel, if they're at the higher part of the steering wheel, I learned this from a exercise physiologist. It's just like not great for belly breathing. Cause you're like, basically your chest is kind of raised when your arms are top two and the 10 and two spots. You just put them on the lower part of the steering wheel. It's a great time. So on your, something you're already doing on your commute on whatever, like tag it into something. And I suggest always setting phone alarms to do things because if we're not triggered to do something, we're probably going to forget about it tomorrow. Right. So I would just like start with a minute, start with two minutes or like just do it during, um, during time, you're already doing something else. So you actually getting it done is more important than worrying about how long you do it. Cause that's a tendency. That's a, and it's a good question, but it's a question that someone asks that needs this so much and will create like, Oh, I didn't have that amount of time. So I just didn't do it. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to give you a time. I'm not going to give you a box to check. Just do it when you're doing something else and you can just like continually improve it. If it doesn't feel quite right, like, dig into it. There's some like breath, like there's different types and don't overcomplicate it. Just start with inhale three, exhale six, inhale four, hold four, exhale four, hold four. Those are both like, you don't even need to do, you don't need any more knowledge at the moment. You just need to try it. <laughs> you don't need like to, to, you don't need to go learn about it before you do it. You can do it right now while you're listening. That's it. Listening to this podcast is a good time to start breath work right now at this moment. That's the best. Time. Uh, yes, absolutely. And I would add in, I've started doing it whenever, if I'm in a meeting or on a phone call or, you know, in the car, but especially if something triggers that, sh- that feeling of stress within me. I'm trying to make that my immediate reaction of breathe, breathe deeper. And the longer the exhale, you know, the better, because the longer the inhale, as opposed to the exhale, then your body's primed for that flight or fight response. Mm -hmm. That's what I was just going to say. We should weave in the science here. So we know why it matters. You are activating your rest and digest your parasympathetic nervous system versus your fight or flight. Cause you're like in little low stages mm-hmm. of that fight or flight. So you want, and guess what happens if you continually activate your fight or flight, your autonomic nervous system is going to get out of balance. And so your vagus nerve doesn't really get um, the exercise it needs. And your vagus nerve is this largest nerve that like goes all the way through your head, innervates like all your breathing, et cetera, through your diaphragm, et cetera. It kind of like affects I mean, think of a symptom that's annoying to you probably could be made better by having better vagus nerve stimulation, Mm -hmm. right? Like just better digestion. So you're not bloated or gassy or whatever. Um, Just all those, all those things. My mother was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition in, in March. I wrote a nine page thing up because it was like, let me tell you why you should care about this. And now you start breathing and then she's over here. Like what you were also looking at and no judgment here. We want to pay attention to, do we are more, are we more of a chest breather Mm -hmm. or a belly breather? you identify as a chest breather, this is a, this stop everything else you're doing and work on this. Okay. Because chest breathing is automatically like fight or flight style instead of rest and digest style. So it's not going to have like great downstream effects. And so it's not like a scare tactic. It's just like 
please stop what you're doing and prioritize um, Mm -hmm. belly breathing instead of. Mm. So So nature, breathing, what else can help stress, Mm -hmm. stress resilience? Mm, What else can help stress resilience? Um, Dancing. Um, So you can, you can boost endorphin production to tell your Treg immune cells to like dampen inflammation overall. So what's happening is boosting endorphins, dampening inflammation. Okay. So that's through socialization, laughter, positive attitudes, sex, meditation, massage, play. So playing with your kids. I mean, I grew up with a family in a family that did not like play with kids. And my mother-in-law really plays with my kids and my husband really plays. And I have to like stop and reset to become more fun. (laughs) Right. Because I grew up with a mom who was like, she was just too busy cleaning to play with me. And like, it shows because she was now diagnosed with an autoimmune condition. Like, it's like, there was a lot of stress. She's always got a lot of like, not good sleep. Also, by the way, we need to have good sleep because that's, we literally sleep a third of the day on purpose because, and I know sometimes that's not easy. Sometimes there's gut stuff going on and you're not sleeping all night. Okay. Sometimes there's adrenal stuff going on and you're not sleeping all night. Sleep issues are one of my favorite things to, to talk about because depending on when you're waking up can equal kind of what's going on a little bit with you. So, but anyway, those things that are like simple, but if you just had like, if you made a checklist and said, my socializing, laughing, um, having a positive attitude, uh, meditation is, you know, can be elusive. It's like letting all the thoughts out of your brain. I think this is literally what people do in the shower. Um, the best ideas come to them in the shower because it's like, all you're doing is like mindless stuff. And so you're just thinking about it. Or let's say you drive on something like auto. Let's say you drive on autopilot because it's the same. It's almost like meditation. <laughs> not really. I'm not saying I'm not trying to downplay, but I'm just saying sometimes we think, oh, I'm not going to do that or that's silly or whatever. Like, well, remember how your best thoughts come to you in the shower? It's probably a lot like that. Um, but just, yeah, playing. playing and laughing and dancing in the kitchen. If you can't do anything else, dance in your kitchen. Look at the sun those things help too. I love that. And it's, so the thing, what's been difficult about me, I like what you just said about meditation. Cause what's been difficult for me is I feel like that's more of the other thing. Like, Oh, I got to add this because it has such good benefits and I know I need to, but honestly, I don't enjoy it. And, but I know it's good for me, mm-hmm. but if you kind of reframe it and say, well, what's the point of meditation to downregulate, to turn off your, you know, that that just try to turn off the brain that's overworking all the time. Because what's hard for me is I feel like I have to close my eyes and just stop thinking. And I'm going to keep thinking. And then I my mind wanders. But if it's when I'm showering, if I could think, just focus on breathing and not looking at a phone, not doing stressful things when I'm in the shower, I could do that. That's easy. And so like, how could we also simulate that shower environment? Because the reason we don't have our phone in the shower is because, duh right? Or like anything else. And we do. So like, is there anything on this? I I hope no one has their phone. Right. And so this is where like, I wonder if a walk with the dog, like just leaving things like what else can you do to simulate a really similar thing where it's, and that's a, that's a great place to start. Um, cause you're going to feel when they call it moving meditation, right? It, like you feel like you're accomplishing more. And it's a typical high performer thing. You feel like you need to accomplish something. And if you sit still, you feel weak about it sort of, you know, or like you just, and I, I agree. Cause I've interviewed, Lots of people on meditation because it can be elusive for me here and there. And um, one of the things, and this is a very much a paraphrased um, uh, benefit, but basically people who meditated long term, like five plus years, and they were in their upper decades, had the prefrontal. So the prefrontal cortex, I believe, 
is like the manager, like the, it's like, it's like your logical brain. And then what's the inside one? That's your child. I can't remember what it's called right now. So prefrontal cortex is like your manager and it starts to get like flaccid and not good with, as you age. And so it's like not as sharp and as good. Um, but for people who meditated for more than five years, they had like a prefrontal cortex of like a 25 year old. Wow. Um, yeah, I should probably care about that more. <laughs> I would like to have a young brain. <laughs> I'd like to have a young brain. Right. That's great. Right. But it's hard to, because we're not there yet. We're not 25 years in our future yet. So it's so easy to say, oh, I'll worry about that later mm. and not do the things that are going to help it now. Totally. Okay. Before we end, I have to ask you about food. So, and I guess coffee. Dang it. So what, what are some of the good things we can eat to help us manage these stressful feelings we have, the symptoms of stress that happen in our body? Um, what can we eat? And do we really need to think about giving up caffeine? Well, let me, uh, let me address the caffeine one first. I think that is a great question. Um, so if you feel like you can't get up and get moving in the morning without your coffee, then that is called that's called your cortisol awakening response. You should want to that your cortisol has a natural rhythm. We have it because it's essential to our body. It's just that we're spiking it too much. Um, but mm. it should naturally rise when it's time to get out of bed and the sun helps trigger that. So that's kind of a big deal. Um, so you want to see, like, I would just encourage you to get out and look at the sun right away in the morning, like for a minute or two first. Um, that's going to be a big thing before you consider the giving up of the coffee. Cause like depending on how you react to coming off of coffee is just a good idea to like, okay, cool. There's some things I can work on here um, that probably need to be done. If I don't want to like totally kill myself with this stuff or, or get in. Cause what happens is our body gives us, um, it gives us whispers before it screams. So it screams when you get diagnosed with an autoimmune condition. That is literally what it does. It's like chronic stress is almost, I've never met an autoimmune condition that didn't have a chronic stress underlying piece before it came. Never, never seen it. So, um, so you want to listen to these whispers, your eye twitching, you know, like little things, uh, you want to, you want to pay attention. You want to pay attention to like just not having good energy. There's a lot of reasons for that. And the gut imbalances really uh, poke at the adrenal stuff. So like to talk about food, I think backing up, you should be able to tolerate foods. So not being able to tolerate like a, a healthful diet is a red flag in itself. That's gut imbalances that are creating that, right? You should be able to enjoy carbs without feeling really bloated. And carbs are an essential nourishing piece. So people who don't have their period, this is called hypothalamic amenorrhea. One of the first thing, it's it's commonly related to under eating over exercising and not enough energy or carb carbohydrates. So I can't give you like a really quick answer to food because it's like, people might say, but yeah, I can't do that. Well, it's because there's a reason for that. Um, but what we can do is we can lean into lots of colors. So here's some like tangible things we can do. We can try to get 20 colors of fruits, vegetables, and spices per week because those polyphenols are recognized as prebiotics and great, great nourishment for our bodies. And if you can do that, you're just nailing it. You're nailing it and getting like multiple cups of fruits and veggies a day. Those are just underrated. Those are things that people don't necessarily do. Or it's like, oh, why do I, why am I so tired? I've only had like four cups of coffee today and like a half of a piece of toast and I snacked on some crackers. You just need to eat in general. You need to like actually nourish yourself and have at least three food groups at a meal. Um, and I think if we just stop and ask ourselves if we're doing that, that's probably plenty for most people to do first. <laughs> how do you know, or how does someone know how much food is actually enough for them? So not too much and not 
too little? I feel like this is the biggest question I have. Because if I actually do the little like calculators that tell me how many calories I should eat a day, it's <sighs> someday, honestly, Honestly, some days I am so hungry, I probably eat 3000 calories. And then I'm like, I shouldn't have done that. I went over like, but, but I was nourished. I didn't feel overfed. Like I, I may have even still been hungry, but I'm like, according to science, or at least what this said, I shouldn't have been that hungry. So then the next day I'm trying to like stay at 1900 or whatever. And this has been a real struggle for me. So, so when you said eat enough food, what is enough food? Um, that's going to depend on the person. I want to actually answer it from like a couple different angles. So if your blood sugar is out of whack, you might feel like this. There's nutrients related to blood sugar, like D, magnesium, chromium, et cetera, that are going to help dictate um, hunger cues a little bit. Um, the types of foods will ha- will start to um, affect this as well. Gut imbalances, fungal bacteria overgrowth will make you really hungry all the like ravenously hungry all the time. And that's not your fault. Um, and they, and they cause adrenal issues, um, or like they, they add more insult to that. And so I would kind of just stop and say, if you like ate 3000, and then my other question would be like, what was your exercise like? Because if you're, if you're exercising more and on one of the podcasts where it was like, there was two of them with my friend who does more fitness stuff. And one was, do you like your body? It's like, can you love your body and want to change it? And then there was another one on like how to eat. Like you look like you work out. It was, she talked about moving from like strength to like a orange theory type fitness and how dead she was the weekend after doing that and realizing that she really had to increase her intake. So if you're doing a long workout and you're starting to feel dead afterward, you're probably not getting enough energy Um, and energy equals like just basically calories. Um, but the quality there will make a difference as well. So the answer to your question isn't, of course, simple. It's like there's, it just spawns six more questions on like, what are the things? And you're giving yourself away on like a person who's looking for like a rule to follow a little bit. There's something not quite right, right? There's something out of balance and you're trying to figure out what it is. And the answer might be multifaceted. It likely is multifaceted, right? It's like, is there nutrients deficient for blood sugar issues? Is it, um, is it gut or fungal imbalances? Is it appropriate? Like, is what you're tracking even accurate, right? Like, I mean, you even be worried about it. So, cause there's a multiple ways. Like I just gave you some tactical things, but then there's a whole body of people in my profession that would say this think intuitively as well. And I think sometimes intuitive stuff doesn't work if you're like ravenous and you're start and you're like, I can't stop eating this. You know, that's where I really look for imbalances. And that's where these two sides need to marry a little bit more, but intuitively it's like you stop eating when you're so much full, you know, like you honor your body cues first. And then you look for like, huh, does it seem out of balance or imbalance or what's the scoop here? Um, so those are all some things I guess that, that matter. And if guts out of balance, it's gonna, it's gonna throw off your ghrelin and leptin hormones as well. Your hungerfulness hormones as well. Mm-hmm. And just like timing of eating sometimes will throw that off as well. Like if we wait too long, we're in a real binge restrict cycle. So we don't want to be doing that either. Binge restrict is like not cool right? Like we've all been there. It's like, oh, I'm going to eat lunch and I'm freaking starving at 4 p.m. and I ate like a whole meal before I cooked supper. Oh, who did that yesterday? Me probably. <laughs> like if you didn't have a good lunch, plan a good lunch. That's a great plan first, right? Because often we get into like, I'll just figure it out. And so just kind of figuring out when you're already in the moment, um, we tend to not kind of do what we think we want to do. 
That's so true. And I, th- I think there's always a correlation with me. It's if I'm intermittent fasting and I eat a small lunch and then at dinner, I'm just like, yeah, hungry. seems like a problem. <laughs> seems like it's not working. Seems like a problem. <laughs> seems like a problem from what we've discussed, maybe. So maybe something to think about. Okay. So what are next steps? Where can people connect with you? Listen to your amazing podcast. Tell us all the details. Yeah, you bet. I would love if you came and listened to the podcast. I think it's my favorite thing ever. And it's called the Less Stressed Life podcast, um, available everywhere that you find your podcasts. And my you can get to my website from Less Stressed Life Nutrition or Less Stressed Life as well. And I've got a couple cool quizzes over there. Um, there should be one up by the end of the week about like kind of like burnout level, like knowing what phase of it you're in, because so often we're pushing past the the healthy um, signs and symptoms. So I've kind of got a questionnaire and it's like, it sort of makes you feel called out a little bit. <laughs> so you might check that out if you enjoyed this, this episode. Definitely going to be doing that. Yeah. 100%. Well, Krista, I have loved our conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. I, I know the audience is gonna love it as well. Yay. I'm so happy. Thanks for letting me be here. Here is my key pies takeaway from today's episode. When you don't feel good, the people around you don't feel good. It's kind of like that old adage that says, when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. The relationships that you are in, if you cannot come and show up and be present in those relationships, feeling good, having energy, and honestly being able to focus on the other person instead of focusing on how bad you feel, then it's going to have a negative impact on your relationships. And it's not all in your head. I mentioned on the podcast how earlier this year, my doctor did a very in-depth, detailed hormone panel on me to see exactly what was happening inside my body over a 24-hour period of time. And the results were astonishing. Some of the hormones in my body were so low that he said they were like that of an 85-year-old. And other hormones in my body were so high, they had accumulated so much, like that metabolized cortisone that we talked about in the episode today. Now, metabolized cortisone was just building up. So it was like my body was trying to take out the trash and it was leaving it by the end of the driveway for the trash man to pick up and the trash man would never come. So when I got these results, I realized I'm not crazy. These feelings that I was feeling back then on a daily basis of just feeling like I couldn't concentrate, I couldn't think, I had brain fog, I didn't feel good, what things that I ate would would not settle well with me. I mean, I had a ton of stress responses in my body because what I didn't realize is I had this inflammation like we talked about. And because of that, I was irritable, I was impatient, I was not really fun to be around. When I would come home from a long day at work, I still wanted to be alone. I wasn't able to be present for my husband or for my kids, especially in the way that I wanted to. And it was impacting not only my life and my health, but my relationships. And I had to start changing my lifestyle in order to get rid of that. As I said in the conversation, I asked my doctor, what kind of pill can you give me in order for this cortisone to leave my body? And he said, there's no pill. You have to change your lifestyle. And so I did. I started focusing on sleep, decreasing coffee, decreasing caffeine, doing all the things that we talked about in this podcast, trying to 
identify the things that were causing inflammation in my body that might have been from a food response, getting rid of those because I wanted to feel good. I knew that if I could feel good in my body, then I could show up better for the relationships in my life. So take your key takeaways from the conversation today with Krista Bigler and make a plan of how you're going to change your lifestyle, decrease your stress, and be more present in the relationships around you. Friends, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember to go and subscribe to this podcast and leave an honest review. I love to hear from you guys. So be sure to go and do that. And it will also help more people find the podcast as well. You can always find out more information by going to itstartswithattraction.com for show notes, for updates, and to join the email list so that every Friday you can get an encouraging email that specifically tells you what you can do to work on your pies so that you can become the best that you can be physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. Until next week, keep working on your pies and stay strong.